Well, let my first words to you this morning be words of confessed and confused embarrassment. A few months ago, I remember asking you to take out your pen in order to have you strike out one point in your outline. But this morning's editorial changes are going to be truly revolutionary in comparison. I'm going to set you free, my friends. Free from the shackles of a three-point outline prepared by a man who didn't know what he was doing before it went to print. Free to know that yesterday's outline page is today's whiteboard. You're being invited to enter the nirvana of knowing that the outline is but an illusion this morning. There's no outline but what you make of it. And by the way, the new title is Faithful Presence. Faithful Presence. Same passage, though. We didn't change that. And we'll find in our passage this morning the gospel of Jesus as we always find it. And we're going to find it addressed to a humble, bold, enduring, restful church. All because of Jesus' presence. And we find it in Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. And Father, we pray that this same Spirit would speak through this same word this morning to us, the Church of New St. Peter's here in Dallas. We pray, Father, that through your Spirit you'll open our eyes to understand what it means to engage our culture with boldness and humility, with endurance and yet with the rest that you provide through your Son. Do these things for us, Father, for we are a needy people. Do them in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it can feel like being part of a giant tug-of-war game, only a lot of times it feels like being the rope in that game. At least that's how I feel sometimes. 
when listening to various Christian groups tell me how I should think about and interact with my secular American culture, and I know that many of you feel the same. One Christian group pulls really hard on the rope in this direction, seeking to convince us that the best way to change the world is to do it through seizing power in the government by having our favorite people elected, people who share our moral values on religious expression and criminal justice and sexual norms in the hopes of rolling the clock back to a time when Protestant Christians were respectable and held sway over the institutions of power in our country. But then another Christian group pulls really, really hard on the rope going this way, trying to drag us in this direction. And for them, changing the world means supporting government platforms that provide more economic and social justice and equality. And it definitely means disassociating yourself from those of the first group. And then another Christian group comes along. And they pull really hard on the rope. And they're trying to drag us in yet a third direction. And for them, the world means changing the world means supporting government platforms that provide more economic and social justice, yes, possibly, but really for them, they're disgusted by the political activism of the first two groups. They see government and the marketplace as only instruments of violence and power games, and they chide Christians for wanting to have anything to do with either one of them, For them, changing the world means showing the world that you really don't care much about state power at all. That's how we're going to change it for them. There's been a very thoughtful book that's come out recently. It's called To Change the World. And it's by an insightful Christian sociologist by the name of James Davison Hunter. He's a sociologist at the University of Virginia. And he argues that there are two problems shared by all three of these models. First, he says that all three share the view that Christians are supposed to be concerned with changing the world, that it's their job to change the world. And he says that's a problem. That assumption is a problem. He says, actually, we're not. And secondly, he says that a problem all three share is that they define their relationship to the culture by their involvement in government, either on the right or on the left, or no involvement at all. And instead, for Hunter, Christians should define their relationship to culture in terms of faithful presence. And out of all seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in Revelation, his letter to the Philadelphians proclaims much the same thing. In this letter, Jesus claims to have the keys of David... To be the one who opens doors and shuts doors. But then he goes on to call the church in Philadelphia and us to maintain a humble but bold presence in our culture. And then he calls us to live out a persevering, enduring presence. And finally, he provides everything that we need in order to live out a restful presence. But as he does in all of these letters, 
Jesus starts not with words of commendation or words of challenge. He never starts these letters by addressing the mission of the church. He doesn't give us merely principles for living. He starts by setting the eyes of his people where they always belong. He starts with himself. Jesus starts with his divinity. He reminds us that he is very God from very God. He calls himself the Holy One, which recalls God's very often repeated title for himself in the Old Testament, the Holy One of Israel. But he also calls himself the True One. Because as God the Son, Jesus is the one who defines truth. As is true of all divine attributes, God actually is the definition and source of all that he is. Truth isn't just a label that we place on something that corresponds to reality. Truth truth was a living being first before we began doing that. Truth is God, and God is truth. And because this is so, we can now use the category of truth to refer to that which is real and distinguish it from that which is false. And so Jesus is saying more than just claiming to be an accurate witness. He is claiming to be truth itself, which is another way of claiming to be God. And this means that all other claims to knowledge, all other supposed witnesses to anything, must conform to him. But he's also claiming to be the true, the real Messiah. He's not a fake. He's not a fake, even though the ethnic Jews in this passage think that he is. No, he is the true Messiah. He's the promised son of David. The one who was prophesied to be anointed king over David's throne forever. And this is why Jesus goes on to say that he has the key of David. He has the power to open what no one can shut and to shut what no one can open. And what does this mean? First of all, we should remember that, that Jesus has already claimed to have the keys to Hades and death in Revelation 1.18 already in Revelation, because of his resurrection. And there, Jesus is claiming to have all power over death. But here, Jesus is expanding on that idea. And he's referring back to Isaiah chapter 22, which we heard Mark Ratliff read for us a little bit earlier. And the last part of Isaiah 22, as we heard, God rebukes a worthless steward over Israel by the name of Shebna, A man who sought his own comfort and his own riches and his own ease at a time when he should have been leading the nation in repentance. But God promises to replace Shebna with a faithful steward named Eliakim. God promises to give Eliakim the key to the house of David on his shoulders. To make him a father over the house of Judah. And to make him a throne of glory. All three phrases, which should also cause us to think about Isaiah chapter 9, which we hear every Christmas season. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Eternal Father. 
He shall sit on the throne of David. In other words, the story of the faithful servant Eliakim is referred to as an Old Testament narrative which points forward to the faithful servant Jesus Christ who will replace the unfaithful Jewish scribes and Pharisees from being stewards over God's people. Jesus becomes the true head over God's people and the place of the unfaithful stewards of his day, much as Eliakim replaces Shebna. And so Jesus' keys are the keys to David's royal power, only made greater. His ability to open and close doors is his ability to give salvation and judgment. His ability to admit people into his presence or not. To open doors of opportunity for the gospel or to shut them. His ability to change the culture for the better or the worse as he sees fit. All of this is in the hands of the one who holds the keys. And it's on this basis that Jesus calls out to the Philadelphian church and to us to live out a bold but humble presence in the world. In verse 8, he tells the Philadelphians that he has set before them an open door that no one can shut. And in every other place in the New Testament, an open door means an opportunity for the church to witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. This is true in Acts chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, Colossians 4. And it's clear in this passage that the Philadelphians have heard that challenge and they have walked in obedience to it. They have acted boldly. They have lived with boldness towards their culture. They have kept Jesus' word, which is the gospel, and not denied his name, as the rest of verse 8 says. They had maintained a faithful, bold presence in their community by keeping their witness zeroed in on the most important thing, who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will do. But notice, too, that that their boldness, the boldness of these Philadelphians, is accompanied by great humility. Jesus says in verse 8 that the Philadelphians have only a little power. They knew they were small. They knew their circle of influence wasn't large. They didn't think more highly of themselves than they should have or aspired to great things for themselves. But they didn't think they needed to either. They didn't think they needed to because they knew they were united with the one who had the keys, even though they didn't have them. And part of James Hunter's point in his book that I mentioned earlier is that many confessing evangelicals in our culture seek to change the world with a very different spirit and tone about them. They're scared, not bold. They're angry, not humble. 
And their strategies to change the world, we revolve around trying to kick doors down. Trying to seize the keys of power for themselves and their constituents in order to make themselves feel more safe and secure. And they don't come off to the rest of the culture as those who trust and love their Savior. The one who actually has the keys. The one who actually opens and shuts doors of salvation and cultural change. And how they hope to convince others to trust and love him when they don't come across as doing so themselves can be hard for our culture to understand. It's not a faithful presence at times. It can be a loud and clamoring noise that sounds just like everybody else who's trying to protect themselves. But this letter also calls us to live out not just a bold and not just a humble presence, but an enduring presence as well. Jesus prays as he commends the Philadelphians in verse 8, not just for being bold, but for being steadfast. They have continued on in a long direction of keeping Jesus' word, which means being faithful to proclaim out the gospel, even in adversity. And this adversity seems to be coming from ethnic Jews in the city who actually had high social and economic standing. And though they attended their synagogue dutifully, Jesus calls it a synagogue of Satan because they were unbelieving Jews who rejected him as their Messiah. They had failed to believe and understand that true Israelites, in God's view have never been determined by by bloodlines. True True Israelites have always been determined by faith. And this was true of Abraham's family and Moses' nation and David's kingdom. And it's now also true of Jesus' world. True Israelites are united to the only one who truly became everything Israel was supposed to be. A faithful servant, an obedient law-abiding son, and a priest to the nations. And only Jesus is these things. And only those who are united to him by faith can be considered true Israelites, regardless of who their parents are. The Philadelphians had been true and steadfast to this message. But there's also an implicit warning to the church here as well about what faithful perseverance looks like in the culture. The note of racial tension and cultural differences in this passage, it's not new. Jew and Gentile going at it once again in this passage, as they have in so many other passages. The gospel's bearing upon racial and cultural tension is an absolutely huge theme in Scripture. And we ignore it at our own peril. Because the implicit warning of this passage is that those who claim to be the true church, namely us, the Jews who had that claim, particularly in the Old Testament, don't begin acting like the false church, those of the synagogue of Satan in this passage, by thinking of ourselves as doorkeepers, as having the keys that we actually haven't been given. This is what the Jews 
who were worshiping at the synagogue of Satan, the unrepentant, unbelieving Jews were doing. They saw themselves as doorkeepers. Doorkeepers to who was going to be God's and who wasn't. They saw themselves as having the keys. And the implicit warning here is that we don't get to decide who's worthy of our love and service, who is worthy of gospel proclamation, who is worthy of benefiting from gospel deeds of mercy, and who isn't. We don't get to decide that illegal immigrants aren't worthy of these things because they've broken laws and they compete for our jobs. We don't get to decide that Muslim immigrants aren't worthy of these things because their religion scares us. We don't get to decide that those who hold different political views than we do aren't worthy of these things because they don't agree enough with us or because we don't think they would receive the gospel anyway. We just don't get to decide these things. Because deciding who gets to come through the doors of the kingdom and who doesn't is way, way, way above our pay grade. And what is sometimes a sad irony in some places is where we find those confessing to be Jesus' church acting like the ethnic Jews in this passage with high social and economic standing and power, those who persecuted our fathers and mothers centuries ago. But that's not what we find here. That's not the picture we're given here. We don't find the Philadelphian Christians denying the gospel, denying love or mercy towards their persecutors. Instead, they recognize that Jesus had opened a door. Jesus had opened a door which they couldn't open and they couldn't shut. They didn't seek to flee their circumstances, to shut out uncomfortable relationships and neighbors and ministry opportunities. And in verse 9, Jesus promises that through their persevering faithful presence and witness, he would cause their persecutors to come and bow down before their feet to see that Jesus had truly loved these poor Gentile Christians. Many commentators, both early church fathers and contemporary New Testament scholars, they're actually divided over exactly what this means. Some think it just means that that these unbelieving Jews would eventually understand that the Philadelphian Christians are truly saved and loved by Jesus. And others think that it actually means that these Jews would come to faith themselves It's hard for there to even be a consensus among commentators. But either way, Jesus had opened a door for these Christians. And he he had given them a faithful, persevering presence that he promised was going to bear fruit in some fashion. It's in the news, you, you and I see it every day. What is the Western world going to do about all these Syrian refugees who are fleeing war. And I don't have all the answers for you. That is a big, complex issue, a big, complex mess. There's a lot of issues involved in what Western governments are trying to decide in all of this. I have some opinions, some thoughts, some convictions, but I'm going to keep them to myself. I'm not going to stand up and preach those as gospel truth. 
But what I can say from this passage is that if our government decides to let thousands of Syrians who are fleeing death to settle in our country and even some in our city, we would be very unfaithful Christians if we saw this as anything other than Jesus opening a door. And if our government decides not to let them resettle here, then we would be unfaithful Christians to see it as anything other than Jesus closing a door. And my point is not that both of these options have equal moral worth. I'm actually not commenting on that at all. Rather, my point is, whatever decision the Western governments make, for whatever reasons they have in making them, it will be in accord with what heaven has already decided. According to Jesus' own purposes, whatever they are. And if a lot more refugees enter our country, a bold, humble, and enduring presence for the church will mean holding out Christ in word and deed. Whatever cultural changes come about as a result. Having an enduring presence, though, also means that Christians don't need to withdraw or run from involvement in our cultural institutions, like the third group at the beginning of of the sermon says. We don't need to withdraw from cultural institutions like the arts or education or media or business or government. While not trying to take them over, we're also not disengaging. Because we are to be salt and light, even with our little power in all of these places. And we have no idea what doors Jesus is going to open or close through us as we remain steadfast to the calling that he's placed on us. But some very, very good news in this letter is that in the midst of commending the Philadelphians for living out a bold, a humble, and enduring presence in culture, Jesus also gives them the means for living this way. He gives them the means. He gives them the ability to live out of a great spiritual rest. He doesn't just say to them or to us, suck it up, you can do it, grit and bear it. Jesus promises to them what he has already obtained and won for them. In verse 10, Jesus tells them, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. The Greek phrase for kept my word about patient endurance is best understood to mean kept the message about Jesus' own endurance. Kept the message about Jesus' own endurance. In other words, Jesus had already lived out a life of bold, humble, and steadfast presence himself. The Philadelphian church had become obediently obsessed with this same message. And as a result, they were therefore empowered to do the same. And the promise was that Jesus would protect them from God's coming wrath upon a rebellious and idolatrous world. But we also find Jesus' message of rest in verses 11 through 13. 
The crown that he promises to the Philadelphians is the crown that God had already promised to Eliakim. A crown actually won by Jesus who fulfilled what the story about Eliakim was actually all about. All of the promises in verse 12 are really just different aspects of the same thing. Identification with God and fellowship with God through Jesus. In Christ, we're welcomed into God's spiritual temple. And as Paul tells us in Ephesians, we actually are God's temple, filled with the Spirit. And here Jesus is saying that someday we will be present with God in an even greater sense when he makes his dwelling with us forever. And this is fulfilled at the end of Revelation in chapter 21, when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven. When we're told that there's no need for a temple, no need for candles, or even the sun, for God himself shall be the temple and all of the light that we need. And the Philadelphians are told that a taste of this joyful, restful presence is available to them now. In fact, because of what Jesus has done for them, it is theirs to enjoy every day. Do you know the rest? Do you know the rest of having such a relationship with the one who has the keys, who can open and shut doors as he pleases? It means many, 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 many things. And one of the things that it means is that it's not up to you and I to change the world, to change the culture. It's not even up to us to change Dallas. Instead, it means that it's, it's more like a little child who stands on the edge of a swimming pool. His, his father stands in the middle and he's beckoning to the child. And the child is humble. The child realizes the pool is way bigger than me. The water is way over my head. The child knows that he needs his father to be standing there. Or this is not going to happen. But the father is encouraging the child to be bold. Look at me. Jump in. Hold on to me. I've got you. The father's not afraid of the pool. The father owns the pool. And everything in it. And as a result, the child, he's not afraid of jumping wrong, of making mistakes. He doesn't even care what the other kids in the pool think. He's not focused on them. Because of his father, his heart is at peace. And he boldly jumps. And this is how the Philadelphians trusted their God and lived towards their culture. They endured boldly, humbly, with great rest, in knowing that they only had a small circle of influence. They weren't trying to change the world. They simply did what the law and the gospels have said all along. They loved the Lord their God with all their whole selves, And they loved their neighbor, just their neighbor, as themselves, with the gospel. And they could do this because their Savior was very present with them. 
Their Savior holds the keys. Their Savior alone opens and shuts doors. And so, He extends to us the same invitation. Believe in Him. Believe this. Find rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we do pray that you would greatly bless even the circle of influence you've given us as New St. Peter's corporately as a church. We also pray, Father, that you would bless the circle of influence you've given to all of our members. You've given us opportunities as your people to serve you and to have many different places and stations, even within our city, in government, in business, in the arts, so many different places and institutions in our culture to live out the gospel boldly and with humility and steadfastly. And God, we pray that you continue to bless the presence of your spirit in each and every one of us and in our church corporately, drawing many to the Son, drawing many to come and bow down before him and worship as those drawn to him and brought to him as new sons and daughters, regardless of their background, regardless of their creed or race. May their new creed be the Apostles' Creed. May their new creed be that of Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. May their new identity be that of being his sons and daughters in the church. Use us to this effect, however you choose to do it. Because we know, Father, that you have given the keys to your son, and we know, Father, that you have given him the only authority to open and shut doors. And so open doors for us. Open doors for us in our community. Open doors for us in our lives and in our families that your kingdom may march forward in us and through us, even in invisible ways, ways that seem small, but ways that in your kingdom and in your economy are huge, are eternal. In all these things, Father, give us rest. In all these things, give us the rest of knowing that Christ is present with us. And because he's present with us, we can have boldness. Because he is present with us, we do not have to fear. We do not have to be anxious. For we are united to him. We pray these things for our church. In Jesus' name, amen.